Welcome to episode 77 of the Movie Brats Podcast. I am Carter, and joining me, as always, is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm doing well. Uh, Living in South Carolina, I don't actually get to see some of the releases from the previous year until a few weeks into the (laughs) new year. So I know it's already February, but we're going to be doing our top favorite films of 2022 better late than never yeah we don't have the same privileges those who live in new york and los angeles have where they get to see all the 2022 movies when they actually come out so for the rest of uh, the world who isn't quite as privileged we're doing a little belated best of 2022 um we're gonna be counting down sort of our top 10 john has or jonathan has a definitive uh top 10 i have a top five with some honorable mentions and i think there'll be a decent amount of crossover so um i think we'll go ahead and get started with your number 10 of 2022 okay and i like to say that i try to judge films that i saw back early in the year like february and march against your movie you see right at the end of the year because it's kind of unfair when it's right fresh in your mind but one movie i did see this past thursday just a few days ago, uh, I drove to Asheville. I saw Broker, which is the Japanese film that's directed by Hirokazu Kurita. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Mm-hmm. He directed uh, films such as Afterlife, After the Storm, and a few films ago, Shoplifters, which is one of his best-reviewed films and won the Palm d'Or at Cannes. And it's uh, a film of his like many of his that are very much about family and the relationships of people in families and also what it means to be family. And Broker is a film you may be scared off of if you read just the basic plot synopsis. Honestly, it sounds like a really heavy and even disturbing film if you read just the plot basics because it really is about these two men who basically run a black market baby selling business. But the film is so beautiful and humane and just achingly human. And I found it very moving. And it says a lot about what it means to actually be family, you know, adoption and, you know, versus being actually biological family members and what it means to be abandoned as a child and motherhood and, yeah, I just found it really moving. So maybe it's a at a slightly unfair advantage, uh, you know, better advantage because I just saw it a few days ago. But I honestly think it is one of the better films I saw last year. It came out right at the end of the year too. It's called Broker. So uh, you've seen a few of his films like Shoplifters. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I've not seen too many of his. But I've really liked all the ones I've seen. Uh, I also really liked after the storm that was a film that was close to my top 10 the year it came out in the u.s but um broker also stars the lead actor um who's been in a number of south korean films such as parasite 
and a number of other Bong Joon-ho films. His name is Song Kang-ho. Um, he is one of the lead uh, males in the film. So I highly recommend Broker. I don't even know if it's streaming yet, but uh, Neon released it. Uh, so look out for that one when it comes out on streaming and home video. It's probably left most theaters by now, but Broker is my number 10. So you went with a obscure foreign movie for your number 10. I'm going to go with my first honorable mention with the highest grossing movie of 2022. Avatar The Way of Water, directed by James Cameron. <laughs> You're shaking your head, Jonathan. We've already discussed this, so we don't need to go into a lot of it, but um, I'm just, I'm a big fan of James Cameron, and I saw this movie a second time, actually, and I liked it even more uh, than the first time I saw it. Um, I just think it's a very unusual blockbuster. The amount of time he, like, focuses on stuff like breathing and the friendship between a whale and a 16-year-old Navi, I think, is just very unique, off the beaten path kind of stuff that I was very happy that uh, people have responded to it to the tune of two billion plus dollars. So I'd be very happy if Avatar The Way of Water continued its dominance of the box office and overtake uh, all the Marvel movies to just shut them out forever. Um, I, 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 I know you shouldn't like, you know, get excited with the failures of others but it pleases me very much that marvel's biggest movie uh made less than a billion and avatar the way of the water the sequel to a movie that came out 14 years ago made over two billion and just absolutely knocked it out of the water um your feelings about this movie well known to to all of our listeners so we could go ahead and move on to your number nine of 2022 yeah hated it one of the worst (laughs) things i saw last year not my thing, but I still really respect James Cameron. I give him, you know, I'll see every Avatar. You think there's more value in this than like Avengers Endgame, right? Yeah, because Cameron is an auteur and he's making a film completely on his own terms, uncompromising. Yeah, I hate what he made. Like, I really was completely bored. And it's like the opposite of what it excites me in cinema. Yeah. I hate the CGI. Um yeah, I, I just. Right. But, <laughs> this but, is this is one we will never see eye to eye on. Is the Avatar movies? But honestly, I would say if you only saw ten films from last year, I would say this is one you should absolutely go see in the theater. Yeah, I mean, it is the biggest movie of twenty twenty two. So, I mean, it define it. It will define the year, I think, moving forward to a certain extent. No, I think that like six months from now, like the previous film, like everyone on Earth will go see it, and like it will be virtually not talked about for the. You know, until no, Avatar three comes out. I know it's like everyone goes to see him, but they make no cultural imprint. It's really bizarre. I mean, it's a really you for me. I think it's just a very unique sort of cultural phenomenon. Also, the way it like makes money in the box office is so unusual. Where you have like Avengers Endgame, who you know makes two hundred million its first weekend, then has fifty percent drop off basically every week moving forward. And Avatar, for like a long time, was making more money like one Saturday than it did the week before, which I just think is a really unique box office phenomenon. And I um, think you also always have to take in consideration like how much a movie costs a ticket when Gone with the Wind came out versus well, now. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, uh, like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, I think sold like technically more tickets than in the other movies. So we can't, and I, and a lot of movie theaters, you know, were selling tickets for like a penny because it was the depression. So it's hard to judge what actually is like the most successful movie ever, but 
Because um, it's also like, how much does it cost to see something in IMAX 3D, which yeah. a lot of people did see this movie in IMAX 3D, including yeah. you. Right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I absolutely recommend people, and it's still playing in IMAX. I think, I don't even know. Yeah, and I actually saw it not in 3D the second time I saw it. It was like standard definition, and I thought it was still pretty awesome. Um because I wanted, I wanted to see sort of what it looked like without all the flash and everything, without the the 3D and the IMAX. And um, you really I, saw the, nothing there. No, I think actually the 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 CGI looked a lot better, to be honest. I think um, than it did in IMAX 3D, which I think is a little strange, but I thought it looked actually better, <laughs> which is yeah. a little weird. But because um, no. yeah. I guess maybe as a glasses wear, I don't think the 3D glasses sit very comfortably for me. So. Um, without having that sort of extra thing to the process, I actually enjoyed it more. Um, but we can move on. <laughs> yeah, n- not going to be a fan of that. You know, maybe I'll suddenly see the third film or fourth film or fifth. It'll film. just click. <laughs> yeah. I, I just have this fundamental thing against the CGI. Um, my number nine is another Asian film by a master filmmaker. It's uh, Park Chan Wook's decision to leave which we reviewed. This it's, is our first crossover. Okay. Is it one of your uh, top five honorable mentions? It's it's top five. For me, it's number three. Oh, very good. Yeah, yeah. I saw it at the New York Film Festival with Park in person, and it's just thoroughly enjoyable. It's expertly crafted and made on a technical level. It has really strong performances. It twists and turns, and it's like a pulpy, just really fun murder mystery that's surprisingly funny and it's just completely compelling and then it gets kind of surprisingly uh emotional by the end of it rich and emotional like you you kind of not sure how to trust some of the main characters and it you know kind of twists and turns but then you actually it gets surprisingly uh emotional towards the end yeah so decision to leave i was uh, immensely entertained by and it's uh, certainly one of the best directed films of last year yeah I mean that's for me what stands out just one of the best directed movies of the year um, the visual language of the movie is just so compelling it's just so interesting to watch every sort of move he makes with the camera and how scenes are set up and which things are in focus and which things aren't um, it's really really exciting and compelling movie that just feels pretty unique compared to the average, especially murder mystery that, that people see. Um, it, it was a movie that I was watching and I was just sort of very excited of the possibilities of cinema. It's one of those sort of things that, um, you know, just makes you happy that you're someone who likes movies and, and goes out and sees stuff like this. Um, so my next honorable mention um, is The Northman, directed by Robert Eggers. Um, this was a movie that I had real high expectations for. And they were mostly met, um, but what most struck me about this movie is just how different it is than most big budget movies that come out. Um, how unapologetically like gnarly the movie was, and how it shows acts of violence that are pretty extreme um, without making real moral judgments or anything like that. Um, so I thought it did a, a really good job of capturing the ethos of, of Vikings and just how different they are than us and what they consider to be good or what they consider to be wrong is just completely alien to someone who lives um, in 21st century society. So 
I was really surprised by how unapologetically uh, Viking it was and how it, it felt more like a movie made by Vikings than a movie about Vikings, uh, which I found pretty extraordinary. Um, the public did not respond to it uh, the same way I did. It was one of the more notorious box office bombs of the year. But um, I do have to give credit to, you know, whoever put the money up to allow Robert Eggers to make a pretty uncompromisingly violent and pretty dark movie um, that I think is probably the most accurate depiction of, of the Viking culture that I've ever seen in a movie. And um, I think ultimately <laughs> Viking culture is a little too weird, a little too dark for the public to respond to, but I give a lot of credit to Robert Eggers for, for going out there and making it happen. Um, and I think this is a movie that um, its reputation might grow as the years go on because it is a very, very unique movie. And um, it's just unlike most stuff that people will see. Um, I don't think this is in your top 10, right? But I remember you enjoying it. Yeah, I liked it well enough. I It's actually my third favorite of his three films so far. Um, but I think that it is unusual and certainly arty and uncompromising for a film of that budget. But I'm not surprised uh, the movie it was with it being a Robert Eggers film. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. The guy yeah. who made The Lighthouse is going to make something pretty weird. Right. Um, I want to uh, shout out that, I mean, I wasn't expecting this to get nominated, but I would have nominated Nicole Kidman for supporting yeah. I think it's one of the best things she's done in a while. Not that she gives bad or uninteresting performances, but she's so good in the film. Didn't get nominated for any technical stuff, and I think it really should have. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. I think it may be I mean, one production of... design, set design, stuff like that. It's like yeah. the Cost. detail, the level of detail is ridiculous in it. Right. I, I think it may be one of those things that the movie looks so realistic. I mean, I mean, it's like there's like a nude fight in front of a volcano. It's not. Super, <laughs> but, but in the sense that it's so authentic to the period detail and it feels like you just really went out to the middle of the cold wilderness and filmed that I think perhaps there's some people that look at it and think that it's just so natural that there wasn't a lot of. Yeah, you take for granted the the mastery of the the set design and the, the cinematography and stuff like that. I definitely get a sense of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, also, yeah. I think to a certain extent, people just forgot about it because it came out in like March and it was critically well received, didn't make a ton of money. It almost broke even, but I don't think I think it ended up losing, you know, 20 million dollars, something like that, which is not an insignificant amount of money. Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's a little unfair to call it a notorious bomb. I mean, it didn't like horribly fail, like, but it well, it's just it was so expensive. Like you look at the budget and you're like 80 million dollars. Holy shit. Um, but you so, can see where the money went. Because it's it's extremely authentic, and um, you know they they built like whole towns and stuff like that for the movie. So it's it's one that I'm just I feel very glad that someone put up the money for it. But if if it was my money, I would not have because you could sort of see that it was probably not going to return on investment. Right, especially with the R rating, it being so violent and uncompromising and arty. And the guy who did the lighthouse previously. <laughs> Yeah, it's not going to be Avatar the Way of Water at the box office. Right. Well, uh, my number eight is Steven Spielberg's latest film, The Fablemans, which I think is one of his best films in recent years. And he's had a really amazing hot streak 
in the last few years, not like every single film, but I mean, I really liked a number of his recent films. And I saw some Twitter thing about what was Spielberg's last best, you know, last good film, like uh, the Fableman just came out. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, uh, it's very autobiographical, obviously, if you know anything about the film. And I think that some people, this happens with the number of Spielberg films. I think people look at it on a very surface level and go, oh, it's this film about his own childhood and how he's such a great filmmaker and it's about the love of cinema and it's this, but it's actually a pretty dark and complex morally. Uh, it's like, it's, it's like a very naked film from him. And it's kind of surprising for someone that on, you know, there, you know, you know, there's movies like Jurassic Park and Indiana Jones that are like just extremely well-made escapist entertainment. But if you well, look, that's sort of what he became known as the guy who, who you know makes the uh holocaust movie that has an uplifting ending something like that um that like doesn't really go dark yeah yeah I, and I, yeah i think that i mean and it's not like it's dark in the same way the northman is yeah uh, it's it's surprisingly uh thorny and i mean ambiguous isn't necessarily the right word but it's it it's, doesn't make moral judgments right in a way that i think you know most movies would where like someone does this that's a bad person and it's not just this oh little kid wide-eyed looking at the movie theater screen with the light shining on his face like the nicole kidman amc ads <laughs> it's not that it's actually a film that questions the power of cinema and the the what moving images and capturing moments of human life because i mean it basically i mean in a way it like destroyed his parents marriage yeah <laughs> And it's like, did Spielberg's, you know, you know, even though he seemed to be like kind of this savant and had this amazing talent at a young age, you know, that, you know, how does, how do your artistic choices uh, affect your real life and your personal life and your family? It's yeah. I, I, and it's just, uh, this is not surprising, but it's just, incredibly well made on every level and has really strong performances i mean i wish paul dano had gotten nominated i don't understand like if he had gotten nominated they would have put him in supporting actor i think michelle williams should have been in supporting actress i don't get why one would be in lead and the mode. other wouldn't yeah right well this is this is our second bit of crossover and you're spoiling my my top five because for this for me this is the number two movie of the year um it's it's I watched it the first time we reviewed it and I really liked it. Um, but the second time I watched it, I just like cried my eyes out. It just like hit me on like a totally different sort of level because I knew what was going to happen. And um, just the, the sort of moments of just like really bearing his soul to the audience, I thought was really extraordinary. Um, I think it's notable that he waited to make this movie until both of his parents were dead um, because it it really reminded me of another movie that's going to be on my my top five um i might as well just say it now after sun by charlotte wells and just the way um it's sort of about someone seeing their parents as real people and not um you know some sort of like mythic figure or um someone who exists in the role of parent like someone who's actually a human being um i think those it makes for an interesting double feature if you were to watch those together but um just just the way he he examines like the way his parents raised him and who they are as people, I think was really, really extraordinary. And um, 
I think this is a really unique movie for Steven Spielberg. I think someone said that this is the movie we've been waiting for him to make. And I think in a lot of ways that that's, that's true. Um, And I'm interested to see where he goes moving forward because uh, it's funny. Like he made ready player one and we're just like, Oh, Steven Spielberg's done. And then he comes out with two of his best movies that he's ever made. I I didn't think Spielberg's (laughs) done. I just thought this is the movie he made. But yeah, yeah. E.T. is autobiographical. I'm sure Schindler's List and uh, is autobiographical in a way, but this is his most, you know, it's it, the kid is not called Steven Spielberg, but it's very much based on his own family life and upbringing. And yeah, I just thought it was uh, a wonderful film. And it's, it's one of the major awards contenders, Oscar nominees that I, you know, is one of my favorites of the year. Yeah. Um, I think we're about, We've already spoiled three of my top five, and I think we're down to seven for you. So we're running out of movies here. For, uh, so I think we're going to take a short break and uh, be back with you guys in just a minute. All right, we are back counting down our favorite movies of 2022. Um we just had your number eight. Yes. Uh, so I will throw in another honorable mention. Um, and I will go with Glass Onion, a Knives Out Mystery, directed by Ryan Johnson. Um, I was a little surprised by how much this was shut out at the Academy Awards, to be honest. Um, to see everything, everywhere, all at once, to get two supporting actress nominations. And for Janelle Monet to not be nominated, I thought was just a travesty. I thought that was one of the better acting performances of the year. Um, and one that I think is rewarded by by multiple rewatches because um, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's a pretty complicated role. And I think she absolutely knocks it out of the park. Um, and this for me was one of the, the best movies in combining entertainment, um, also addressing contemporary issues and also being kind of about something in a way that uh, maybe some movies are not. Um, So for me, this, this hit most of the boxes and I was, uh, I was a little surprised to see how I would it only get like one Academy Award nomination for adapted screenplay. Right. And I mean, I wasn't expecting it necessarily to get like 11, but (laughs) more than one. Yeah, it's one of those weird ones where I could I could see it like being right on the cusp, but being at like number 11 or 12 or 13, like it could have gotten nominated for Best Picture and Screenplay and that's it. Yeah, because it's really it's a really popular film. I just think that it it's almost deceptively entertaining and light and just really a good, you know, crowd pleasing popcorn entertainment film. But it's also this kind of sly satire. Uh, And it's also just a really well done murder mystery that i liked and i liked the previous one but i liked it even a little bit more than the first one and uh yeah it's it's of it's actually of the there's kind of the trilogy last year of you know asshole rich people going to a location around water uh you have triangle of sadness in the menu and if you want to even make it four with uh the infinity pool from this year um there's kind of this zeitgeist uh look at you know rich people and you know their kind of moral 
choices. Uh, but I, I actually liked of the three from last year, Glass Onion was actually my favorite of them. Uh, yeah. I mean, Triangle of Sadness was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director. Uh, but I like I think Glass Onion is actually a better film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, if you don't mind, I think I'm gonna just put two my next two together. That, um, that works. Okay. Um, they are. Uh, I've already had two Asian films on my list. I have another two Asian films, and they're both extreme movies. At number seven, I have RRR, which is this three-hour-plus, not Bollywood, but it's an Indian. It's an action spectacle. It's a historical epic. It's a male buddy drama. It's a musical with a show-stopping dance number. It's outrageous. It's ridiculous. It's like it's over the top to the max, but I, but so gloriously so. And I, it's one of the most purely entertaining movies of last year. And it's like if you took 10 other American films and you crammed it into one film, it's like has that much entertainment value. Um, I'm not really knowledgeable about Indian cinema, except basically some classic Satyajit Rai films. So I am like one of uh, many people that this kind of broke through. Yeah. Like, watch these kind of long, you know, spectacle. Uh, like I said, this one's not bo bo technically Bollywood, but I've never seen a Bollywood film before. I just was completely blown away and entertained by this movie. And I think that the filmmaker knows how kind of absurd it is but he does it with such zeal and you know cinematic bravado i just was completely won over by it so it's on netflix yeah it's like a full meal of a film it's a <laughs> yeah one of my honorable mentions i think almost more than any other movie i can think of um being on the platform of netflix help help this movie out ridiculously to get it you know shown to an american audience i think if it hadn't been on netflix i think most people who ended up seeing it never would have seen it or never would have heard of it but um because it got this sort of groundswell of um you know people saying how great it was and how exciting and, and different it felt that once it was available on netflix uh, it, it was like a massive massive thing i was actually surprised that this um ended up not getting a best picture nomination. I I was I was really convinced myself for a little while that it was going to happen. Um I think yeah, so. one of my favorite movies of the year. Um uh, I think the best action movie of the year. Um so yeah. Yeah. Uh, surprising that it came from South India of uh, the Tamil speaking nation. It's it's also funny cuz the version that most of us see is is dubbed um not in English but in uh, Hindi because it wasn't shot in Hindi but the majority of people in India speak Hindi so to get like a mass release in India you have to have a Hindi dub so even on Netflix if you watch it you know in its quote-unquote original language you're still actually not seeing it in its original language so I, I just think that's a funny sort of little quirk about it um, but yeah not technically Bollywood as you mentioned it comes from southern India where they they speak a, a different language um, but the first like 45 minutes of this are just like some of the most exciting stuff you'll ever see in a movie to be honest like there are like a dozen scenes that would be like the insane climax of most other movies and there's like like the the scene that ends before the intermission is like like how can you top that and it yeah just... it's like an absolute showstopper and then it's like another hour and 40 minutes of stuff that just takes it to an even more extreme level yeah, uh, immensely entertaining. Uh, I, 
I think that almost anyone who watched it would be thoroughly entertained by it. Uh, so give RRR a chance. Uh, my next extreme one that Carter absolutely did not see, and if it plays ever in a theater in his town, he should probably like leave town for a day, uh, is The Sadness. It is a Taiwanese zombie infected people film. Last year was a great year for horror films. I saw almost yeah. 25 horror films uh, and The Sadness was my favorite. It is unspeakably gory and graphic and bloody and it is like 10 out of 10 on the gore scale it is the real deal it's hardcore only for real you know serious horror fans it's done almost entirely with practical effects so it is not for most people it is uh there's two films in my top 10 that are films that most people would not like uh, but the sadness is if you're if you're game for that type of movie, it is an absolute ball. I mean, it's just I I just in, thoroughly enjoyed it, and I I just sat there with a giant sick grin on my uh, but a perverted it, disgusting grin. <laughs> I mean, it makes Bones and All look like a MGM musical from the fifties. I mean, it's like very hardcore it's the type of movie where like someone gets stabbed with a pocket knife and it's not like blood starts trickling out it's like fire hydrant explodes on the ceiling after half a second and the floor is just covered in caro syrup so uh if you're down for that type of movie i highly recommend it my favorite of a really good year of horror films but absolutely like a big asterisk you know this is not for most people the sadness so we'll, we'll take a pretty big turn to my final honorable mention, um, which I think might end up making your top 10. So I think we might have some crossover here. It is Benediction, directed by Terrence Davies, a biopic of Siegfried Sassoon, the World War One poet. Um, this was one of the best acted movies of the year um, for me. And I'm, a, I'm just a sucker for a period piece, especially set in England. Um this is pretty unusual, though, if you sort of go into this expecting it to be like a like an English patient or something like Downton Abbey. It's very, very different than that. Um, it's a very internal kind of movie, a very subtle movie. Um, I mean, obviously, him being a World War One poet, um, World War One is sort of in the mix, but it's not like a 1917 or um, All Quiet on the Western Front where it's like a big war movie. It's more just about the effect war has on people and. In a lot of ways, I think that's a more sort of honest way to tell uh, a story. I think it's a Jean-Luc Godard quote that you cannot make an anti-war movie where war is the subject because it sort of appeals to the atavistic, violent-seeking sort of desires of people. But because this doesn't really show the war, I think this this does sort of achieve the status of an anti-war movie because it's more about the effect that it has on people and, um, the, you know, the way that it, it reverberates through your life. Um, years and years on and, and not necessarily like when the thing happens is when it affects you um that sometimes it takes longer and, and sometimes upsets you a little bit more deeply um than just the immediate sort of horror of the thing so i thought it did a very good job capturing that um especially in the scenes with wilfred owen who's a contemporary war poet of him that he meets in a, a war hospital um i know you're a big admirer of this movie and also terence davies work in general i think this might have been maybe the first Terrence Davies movies that I've seen that seems like someone who 
I would really like his work, especially because I know a lot of more period pieces set in England. So maybe I should see some more Terrence Davies movies. <laughs> I think he's only made period piece films. <laughs> his previous film was also a biopic of a poet, Emily Dickinson, uh, A Quiet Passion. Uh, but yeah, this is my number two film of the year. Uh, I've been a fan of Terrence Davies since I started watching his films. The Deep Blue Sea was in my top five at least my top 10 the year it came out in the U.S. The year that Sunset Song came out, it was my favorite film that year. Uh, and I just think Benediction, it's one of those films, just on every level, it's just exemplary. It's yeah. thing. The screenplay is really brilliant and smart, and it's just exquisitely made, like the cinematography, and the. it's just, and it's a very moving film. It's it's the type of movie that I think that people that watch Masterpiece Theater in Downton Abbey, they would like it a lot, but it's like, and and I, you know, not to. It's just not quite as obvious as, as stuff like that. It's just um, a, a really intelligent, uh, and it, it's almost, you know, they're, I mean, you could classify it as a biopic, but it's so much better than a lot of those. It's not just like this Wikipedia entry brought to the screen. It's like a real work of cinema. Yeah, I mean, it, it does a really good job just evaluating. I mean, just this person and like, his actions and it, it doesn't like have a like an ending that makes you feel all good. It, it's not really a feel good movie. Uh, but it's one that I think we mentioned at the time, you feel like almost like privileged to have seen it because it's so well made and it's so well acted. Deeply this was amazing. by far one of the best acted movies of the year, I think. Yeah. Um, and it sort of think... shows the limited scope of the Academy Awards that this wasn't nominated for any acting. Um, but, you know, you don't expect that. So it's not something you can really complain about. But, you know, in our own personal record books, we like we know what's up and we know. That Benediction was the best acted movie of the year. Yeah, when they do like the sight and sound polls, you know, there's like, you know, half the movies weren't nominated for any Oscars and maybe were not even very recognized the year they came out. But Benediction, I think, and a number of Davies films will stand the test of time and will be much more talked about than and I don't want to like call out any movies from last year specifically, but I think that. His... Well, Jack Loudon is so good in the lead role. He's just so good. It's one where it's like almost like the actor seems like they were born to play this. And we'd seen him in like Dunkirk and the BBC adaptation of War and Peace and um, some other stuff. But he just blew me away in this movie. Yeah. And it's just, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a very big fan of Davies. And I think this is one of his best films. But he's one of those directors like Pedro Amadovar that like almost every film he does it's like you almost take for granted. I mean, I've seen a number of his films now. It's just like, oh, yeah, he's made another masterful film. It's just like he just that's what he does. So uh, Benediction, it's on Hulu and available to stream on other services. Highly recommend it. Came out in the summer. I actually saw it in the theater. I think it, it's one of those films that kind of got lost. It got good reviews. Um, but it's I just think a lot of people, you know, don't necessarily see that type of movie in the summer, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not saying that I would have like gotten a bunch of Oscar nominations if it had come out in the last three months of the year, but it kind of got, you know, it probably would have been more in the, the sort of news cycle, at least. Right. Um, than it but, was. It definitely got lost in the shuffle. It was right. a big, big release when it came out in Britain, I think earlier in the year, but it, it did not make a big splash in America. Well, bigger, I don't think. Well, it was... <laughs> it's not like it was like Skyfall and like set the record for gross, but. 
Uh, yeah, it, it made a bigger impact in Britain than it did here, which isn't surprising because not a lot of Americans, I think, have heard of Siegfried Sassoon in the first place. Um, well, I am going to group my number five and four because I'm pretty sure at least one of them is in your top five. Um, I will say they are the um, two and a half hour plus films that are kind of me too movies in a way i mean that's kind of a very simple way uh but uh my number five is blonde which is i would say along with babylon and a few other movies one of the most divisive films of last year has righted a 50 on metacritic but i really defend the movie it's a film that i completely can respect if someone actually watches the whole film and has serious issues with the a film and really hates it like i i don't hold that against people that have sincere issues with the film but i think that it is not just this exploitative film that further drags Marilyn monroe through the mud i think it's, it's an exploration of a woman's suffering and exploitation and i think that ana de armas gives an extraordinary performance and i absolutely am happy she got nominated for best actress and screw the razzies that nominated it for almost every category except for best actress uh i mean they're kind of funny at times but you know they nominated a little girl for best fire starter yeah and uh you know they nominated stanley kubrick for worst director for the shining and brian de palma for worst director for scarface but regarding dream dream for worst score for thief wow I mean, come on, guys. But yeah, uh, Blind is a movie I saw in the theater. And I mean, we said this about a number of the movies like Decision to Leave and The Fablements, but it's just exquisitely made on a technical level. It's, I mean, the way it mixes yeah. film stocks and black and white and color and aspect ratios. And I, I, I just think the movie, people are misjudging it as just being this nasty, you know, exploitative movie that just shows a woman suffering for two hours and 47 minutes but i think the film is about that it's not further exploiting her i mean i I, i'm welcome to people to disagree with that but i think that it's a very serious movie and it's I, i i i put it together with babylon last year these very long films that are period pieces about hollywood in the past but i felt babylon was actually much more kind of mean-spirited and ugly and just kind of like flipping less focus definitely and i just thought blonde was like a real accomplishment like i i want to be you know i said it when we reviewed it initially like it's i think it's going to be a movie that people will certainly talk about uh in the years to come and it will be reevaluated. i think there will always be people that have real issues with it and hate it uh, that that think it's a ugly misogynist film, and I and I I'll be the first to admit I think that some of the things that the director and screenwriter Andrew Dominic said in the press it he didn't help of, it. Yeah. He put his foot in his mouth, but it's like as the film itself, I think it's a really strong work. I I really it's my number five blonde on Netflix. Definitely one of the most visually interesting movies of the year. I mean, there are some sequences in that that just totally took my breath away. Um, so for someone to say that like this movie has no value or everything about it sucks, I think is not really giving it a fair shake. Um, 
it's it's definitely it's like that Isabel Huppert quote. It's like whoever said movies were supposed to make you feel good. Uh, it definitely is not a movie that makes you feel good. Um, but it it does not shy away from its subject, and you know people can talk about you know how it could demean Marilyn Monroe or disrespect her legacy, but. I mean, it's obvious to anyone who takes the time to think about it, just how much of a troubled person she was. And if it had been a biopic about her self-producing movies and, you know, being a working girl in Hollywood, doing everything right, it just would have been a dishonest movie. So um, well, and, I do, and I don't think it like totally shows her as like this 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 thing that's used by everybody. I think that it does have some sort of agency in her role. I don't think it like totally takes everything from her. Um, so I, I don't I. It's a difficult movie to evaluate because because so many people hate it. Um, I didn't hate it. It was uncomfortable to watch, but that's sort of the point of it. I mean, this this woman did not lead a happy life. Um, and to sort of think that she did is is lying to yourself. So, and in a lot of ways, it's interesting to compare this with Elvis, which um, is about someone who was exploited and didn't necessarily have the happiest lives. But its tone is very very different, and because it had the sort of cooperation of the elvis um you know his family and his estate and stuff like that it just it couldn't go to the places something like blonde goes but i think it may have been it better if it did sort of go to those places and didn't just necessarily lay all the blame on someone outside of elvis like um so i think in some ways it's a more honest approach to a biopic than something like elvis says I want I want to say though that I don't even necessarily think of it as a biopic because it it's also not accurate that well yeah that's true it doesn't show a lot of light and nice things that happened to her life it pretty much is it's, it's all the bad stuff <laughs> and and I think that it's not trying to be this uh, expansive you know capturing all the aspects of her life it it, it is a portrait of a woman suffering and what she went through and how the media portrayed her and it's almost in a weird way not even like the most important thing that it's that it is Marilyn Monroe I, I think that yeah. it, people think of it as like because I mean it's based on this very fictionalized novel by Joyce Carol Oates and there's a, a number of things in the film that it's not trying to hide that like it's fictional. Like it's not trying to be a completely accurate. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. And in Uh, some ways it's just representative of like what, you know, like Mad Men, if Mad Men was from the perspective of the secretary, it'd be a very different show than from the perspective of Don Draper. So it's just, yeah, about how, you know, in times gone by that there were power situations and, and more often than not, the women were at the wrong end of that and had to go through some serious shit with some minute Whoa. power and it's it's not even something that's totally gone today so um just the just how just how raw it is really and how it, it doesn't shy away from showing some real darkness i think is a it was a pretty powerful movie i mean it's definitely a movie that you watch and it stays on you for a little bit it's not something you can just sort of watch and you know discard or forget about it i mean it is a powerful movie whether you like it or not um, I think my number four is possibly in your top five uh, is Tar. It's not in the top five, Jonathan. It is number one. It is at the apex. It is my movie of the year. Okay, so why don't you uh, go uh, wax poetic about why it's your number one? Well, it's, it's just such... I mean, from the beginning of the movie, it just totally disarms you. I mean, when I was watching the opening credits the first time, I was I was almost like went back to the 
you know the the lobbying was like i think you're showing the wrong movie or like you you started the movie at the wrong point it's just such an unusual way to start it it's like six minutes of credits where it shows you every person that was involved in the movie set to this really bizarre south american throat singing um and it's just it's just so different than than most stuff you see and um it's one thing to just be like different and be like oh that was unusual but to actually be something that's really unique and also like enthralling for especially for how long it is it's about 200 two hours and 40 minutes and um i was totally riveted the whole time um and it's such a it's a movie that's almost completely through one person's point of view which i always like when movies do stuff like that um where it's there's so many different ways that people can use point of view in cinema and so often we just sort of fall back to this sort of generic third person omniscient sort of thing where we get all the necessary plot information and there aren't questions at the end of the movie and all the sort of questions we might have are answered through this sort of third person omniscient you know just feeding the audience necessary information so they don't get confused and they don't get frustrated and tar is not that at all tar like hides stuff from you tar is intentionally obscure um but it's that it's also really entertaining at least it was to me mostly because Kate Blanchett is just so good um, and it's one of those ones where I know you like, and I'm a big fan of it also, where it takes you very deep into a world that you don't really know anything about. But by the end of it, you kind of feel like maybe you're not an expert, but you know a lot more about it than you did before. And um, the whole sort of classical music world that it, it takes us into is just fascinating to me and um, to see the different uh sort of politics of the first violin and you know the concert master and all this sort of stuff i just thought was great um so for me it it, and it was really about something like people would say it's like a cancel culture movie but i don't think it necessarily takes a a stance either way on like whether cancel culture is bad whether it's good um it's just sort of about people in power and what people in power can do without really acknowledging um that there might be something wrong that they're doing because you get so used to people saying yes and stuff like that, that you just sort of expect that that's the way things are. Um, It's a character study that doesn't judge the character. It makes you make your own decisions. Yeah. You know, it felt so real um, despite it being like totally fiction. And that's, I think it walks a really, really interesting line. Like I think it's, is it Andre Bazin who said that, you know, there's two sort of, strings to what movies are they can either be realistic or they can be um expressionistic and this is like both at the same time in a really unique way because there's some scenes where it really makes use of realist techniques with extended takes and um you know not cutting and making uh the sort of environment of the movie something that feels lived in and you use that by having people move around and, and not cutting all the time. But then sometimes it's just like, what is going on? It's like almost like magical realists. So the way it combines those two like extremes of what uh, filmmaking do, can do, the the realist and the uh, expressive, I think the the synthesis of it is is uh, what I find really interesting. I think Birdman kind of did that in an interesting way um, eight years ago. And uh, I just, I just love this. I thought this was the movie of the year. It's like, not even like a question for me. I don't think there's anything that could come close. Well, yeah, I think that it, it's also, I like how it mixes tones, but it's so assured. It's like, kind of like, I feel like it was in such a good year of horror films. 
Tar is like kind of borderline, like it gets a little bit like creepy and haunted. And it's like a little bit of a horror film, like a maybe better to say psychological thriller. Yeah. And it's also like kind of a stealth, like dark comedy, I think. Like it's kind of funny. And I think some people, like I, I just listened to an interview with Todd Field recently, and he said that he was at some screenings there where there was some kind of titters of laughter. And he said that made him very happy. I think he. I think he made the film with a little, not like tongue in cheek, but like, I don't think at all that you should just think of this film as like, oh, it's this very serious. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a film that it's so matter of fact and realistic about depicting the world of, you know, a a world renowned orchestra conductor. And yet it gets more kind of elusive and slippery as it goes along. And you're not even sure I think towards the end, if we're supposed to believe everything's actually happening yeah, or or like, what is the, you know, what are we supposed to believe of what's happening? Like, I love the very last moments of the movie, like what's happening there, you know? And I just think that it's, uh, you know, and I'm absolutely thrilled and happy. I wasn't surprised that it got nominated for best director because it's, one of the like just it's so assured and the director had not done a film in over 15 years and it's just a remarkable achievement and i like no i guess that normal people could watch it and find it really boring and long but like i just found it completely engrossing and riveting with great performances and i was just completely gripped the whole movie well that's where i think like the opening credits is like actually a really incredible way of getting people into the movie because uh, it, it sort of like forces you to be on its wavelength in a strange sort of way into um and almost like by the time it stops you're like oh great now we're actually like seeing stuff so it's like whatever comes next it's better than to see text over a screen set to this weird music um I, I i don't know this is such like a hard movie to think about like what i recommend to people because i feel like the the answer would be like yes everyone should see this movie but uh, i i don't know I, I i haven't like talked to too many average theater going you know casual movie fans about whether they like tar or not but uh, i just can't imagine someone not liking it well yeah i mean but probably you know, it's like a vast majority of the public have not even heard of the movie probably yeah <laughs> yeah and I, I don't know it's just it's like there, there are plenty of movies that I just think are like legitimately entertaining movies and not just like dangling keys in front of your face. Like, and, and, you know, I loved RRR, but like that movie's just like incredibly watchable and like excess, uh, you know. Uh, no, but uh, it's also very clear about like who's good, who's bad. Um, yeah. It does. It's not like it's not a movie that you watch and you're really like conflicted about what you're seeing and asking yourself questions like, is this right? Is this wrong? Um Tar, it just it was just so complex. I think it's like you know, like a great work of literature or something like that. Um, I mean, obviously, it's sort of like ham-fisted to compare compare a movie to a book because they're you know, they're just different art forms. But Tar to me is everything. It's like everything a movie should be. I can't yeah. I can't speak more highly about a movie. Well, it's on uh, uh 4K. Um, it's on uh, Peacock now to stream. Right. <laughs> I wonder if like. I would be really annoyed if uh, during the opening credits said skip credits. That would really annoy me. I don't I think would. Uh, because it's like an artistic choice. But um, yeah, we both very much like Tar. 
Uh, my number three, I think, is one of the films that uh, it's I think it may be the only film that we have not reviewed on the show besides Broker. Um, and I'm almost certain you haven't seen it. I'm not sure that you've ever even seen any films by this director. Uh, very little seen film is called The Novelist's Film by Hong Sang So. I saw it at the New York Film Festival last year, and uh, two of my favorite films were South Korean movies I saw at the festival. And this is a director who makes about two or three films a year. I mean, it's kind of remarkable how many films, especially in like the last five or six years. I mean, he's frequently had two or three films come out each year. He had two films premiere last year. He has one premiering at Berlin this month. Hmm. And uh, he'll do them in black and white. He'll do them in color. Frequently, they're around 90 minutes or less. I mean, he'll make a movie that's like 68 minutes long. And the way he makes his movies is that he writes the dialogue for the scenes they're going to film early in the day, and then they shoot it that afternoon. Oh, it's wow. It's like Jean-Luc Godard. And the novelist film is a black and white movie. It's about 92 minutes. And I don't think if you added up all the total shots in the film that it would be over 30 shots. I mean, there are but many of the shots are over five minutes and there's a few that are go on for like 10 minutes without oh, wow. a cut. and it would be it's not in the way blonde and the sadness or divisive and not everyone will like them but like this is like an arty movie for like film geeks it's like a movie where you're watching a handful of people in black and white talking for like 10 minute stretches at a time without a cut and i just like in a weird, weird way, the way I was wowed by RRR, I was like, oh my gosh, like cinema can be so amazing. Where it's just like two people sitting in a restaurant talking for, you know, 12 straight minutes. And I just, it's, and it's, it's one of the, it's almost in a weird way. It reminded me of the Richard Linklater film Slacker where oh, yeah. following a character and then they meet another character and they meet another character and then it circles back and you, it's like, you're just following people. I mean, Slacker doesn't really like have people come back in and out. No, but, they just sort of stop being in the movie. <laughs> but it, but it, uh, it basically is kind of following this one woman and she's a novelist and she's thinking about uh, writing a screenplay. And I just loved it. I've seen two films by him. I saw him at a previous New York film festival in person and they had a double feature of two of his movies. Cause like I said, he has like two or three films a year. Uh, so uh it did get a theatrical release briefly uh, shortly after it screened at the New York Film Festival. It's the novelist's film. Uh, not for most people, um, but I just, I think it's one of the best films of the year. I really loved it. And it just reminded me, you know, how diverse and different uh, a great film can be. Like, you know, I have RRR in my top 10 and the sadness, but the novelist film is this 92 minute black and white film that has like, less than 30 shots in total where you're just watching people talk and it was just completely engrossing. I loved it. The novelist's film. I mean, that's, I mean, that's great. I mean, ultimately that is what cinema is about. It's, it's a very plastic art form where people can do a lot of different stuff with it. Um, you know, playing with time, playing with all sorts of different stuff. So I think that's probably one I'll end up seeing, but I, no, I haven't seen any of that guy's movies. It's interesting to see that he basically, is in charge of all the aspects of production, written, directed, produced, cinematography, editing, music. So, um, and I'll just you consider uh, that to be an all tour, if you ask me. 
Oh yeah, definitely. And uh, a lot of his movies have uh, filmmakers as the characters. And it, I mean, he, it's like the way Michael Bay is known for like having explosions and car chases. Like he's known for having scenes of people talking in cafes. Yeah. <laughs> his signature. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, so I just wanted to bring up that my number two is, uh, like I said before, Benediction. So I'm down to my number one. What well, I've you- got. Well, let's go ahead and do my my five and my four then, and then we might take a short break before we get to your number one. Um, my number five is After Sun, directed by Charlotte Wells. This is a movie that uh, we reviewed a couple episodes ago, I think. Um, it's a movie I revisited this past weekend to try and get a better sort of feel for it. And, um, to think that this is Charlotte Wells first movie is, is crazy. Cause this is one of the most sort of assured, uh, it's, it's narrative technique. It's visual language. It gets such an incredible groove about halfway through it. Um, where we've got this really unique framing device of, uh, our main character, as an older person in a nightclub where you don't really even hear her speak. You don't really know what's happening. And it intercuts with um, these scenes from her as like a child with her, her father and a vacation in Turkey. Um, and it's, there's been like a, the Fablemans I think is sort of part of this, but there's also an album I like that came out a couple years ago by Lucy Dacus, um, which is essentially a concept album about her watching childhood home videos and sort of writing songs about it. Um, and it, After Sun is just such a great like investigation to the importance of childhood home movies in a way that um, I never expected that sort of topic to pop up at these like great works of art. Um, but looking back, it's so obvious that that it would be because it's such like an interesting way of capturing life. The, the, the home movie, it's something that when your parents shooting it, you're like embarrassed and you're like, why are they doing this? But you know, 25 years later, it becomes like this sort of thing that reminds you of what it's like to be a child and, and who your parents were and stuff like that. Um, that I think it's just, an, it's such an interesting meditation on um, like the role of parents and, and who parents are and uh, you know, who parents are to their children because um, like the Fablemans, like, you know, to a child, your parent is someone who almost doesn't get to be a real person, but um, they obviously are. And it, this is just such a great movie about that, that whole sort of topic. Uh, I don't think this made your top 10, but I remember that you liked this movie. Yeah, it's certainly one of the most assured directorial debuts in recent years. Like you said, it's kind of remarkable that this is her first feature out of the gate. And it's uh, certainly uh, a sign of a interesting and unique and very talented young new director so i'm hope i saw anyway i saw people write this on twitter and it's like i'm hoping that like she doesn't do a live action remake of the great mouse detective next you know (laughs) shortly she's going to be directing episodes of loki season three i know it's like barry jenkins is doing the lion king sequel for real well, he uh, produced this movie. I noticed um, when I was watching the credits this last time I watched it, it's interesting to see he's using some of his uh, his muscles in the industry to get movies like this. I don't know. You know, I don't know his participation, anything like that, but I like to see that he was a producer because um, he's he's a filmmaker who is really interested in, you know, some human stories. And I think this is one of the more interesting ones we've seen. And it's one word you just say, like the plot. Oh, it's like about a girl on vacation with her dad in Turkey. But it's just so much more than that. Um, 
it's one of the great child acting performances I've ever seen. I'm usually not a fan of of kids acting in movies. It's one of the things that would turn me off of most movies as child actors. But this is, uh, she's really extraordinary. The the girl who plays the sort of stand-in for Charlotte Wells. Um, this did get a Best Actor nomination for Paul Mescal, who's about to take off. He was cast in the, the Gladiator sequel that's about to start shooting. And also, uh, Merrily, we roll along the uh, Richard Linklater movie that's going to uh, be shot over the next 20 years so um, interested to see where his career goes um, I've got my number four to reveal you've got your number one to reveal we're going to take a short break and be back with our, our final reveals for our, our best movies of 2022 so we will be back in just a minute All right, after an unprecedented second break of our Movie Brats episode, uh, we are back to reveal our final two movies. Uh, it is my number four movie of 2022 we will start with. It is Women Talking, directed by Sarah Polly. Uh, we covered this, I think, in an episode two months ago, maybe, in December. Um, this was <laughs> one of those movies that... Uh, you sort of lose track of time when it's happening, which I really enjoy. It's like when it ended, I was like, Oh, it's over. Okay. How about that? Um, it's like a single setting movie, basically. Um, and it pretty much is just what the title says. It's mostly just women talking, but this was a lot up with benediction. I think one of the best, best acted movies of the year. I think it was pretty shocking to me that it didn't get a single, uh, Academy award nomination for acting. Um, extraordinary two cast two for everything everywhere i know i did just it astonishes me i just i just can't believe it um sarah polly is not a director i've seen a lot of her stuff um stories we tell i think was probably her her biggest movie before this um would you say that's right i would say it was her first one because julie christie got nominated for best actress but oh, okay. uh yeah, but yeah, Stories We Tell is an incredible film. It's been a minute since she's directed a film, um, but yeah, it's uh, she wrote a memoir actually last year also that uh, a collection of essays where she explains part of the reason is she had like a kind of medical uh, issue where she, uh, something fell on her head and she like, you know, had like, you know, brain issues for a few years. Uh, but yeah, she came back and made this really beautiful movie. I think uh, the for a movie where, it's almost entirely women sitting in a barn talking. It's a really dynamic film. And yeah, really, <laughs> it's not just like a film play. Like it's a, it's a work of cinema. It's, it's like, very cinematic. I think it's uh it's hard not to see the influence of someone like Terrence Malick and some of its shots of nature um, and just things like, you know, two hands holding and stuff like that. So in that way, it's a very expressionistic kind of movie. Um, and it, just really, really, beautiful it's like purposeful movie that uh is about some pretty difficult subject matter but it just takes it on in such a confident way that um it's one that i was just enthralled by i think the the performances are outstanding i think it's a really i wouldn't say it's like a necessary movie but it's it's it hits the sort of vein of of what's happening now i think in a very interesting way and um it's I, I definitely could see this as, you know, someone who 
maybe leans a little bit right would call like a woke sort of movie, but I don't think it's like that really at all. And uh, I actually think takes a very nuanced point of view on, on its subject and really considers the psychology of, of these people who are, who are victims, but also don't want to sort of define themselves as being victims. Um, so for me, it was a very, very powerful movie. And also like if people had this right wing criticism, like it's a, it's a rare modern film that like takes religion very seriously and yeah and you know it's it's a nuanced movie about their decisions and yeah i think that uh sarah Pauly, i mean hearing her talk in interviews she's such just a, a wonderful human being it seems like and a really strong you know focused artist that is making the film she wants to make i mean you could like read the plot synopsis and go oh, this is like oscar bait but like it's it's such a you know, a movie made with a purpose and, you know, you, you don't at all feel while watching it that it's, you know, some awards grabbing, you know, contender. It's it's like a real uh, moving portrait that Sarah Polly made. And it's interesting. I, I, I want to just uh, tell people that when you said that, like, you lose track of time, it's actually one of the shortest Best Picture nominees in the last five years. It's only an hour and 44 minutes. And, like, I honestly think there's maybe, like, two best picture nominees that are shorter from the last five years so yeah. it's not like it's like a you know long slog of a movie but it's just you get so enveloped in it that you kind of it, it time goes by and you don't it, realize it, it felt like it was no time at all to be honest when i watched it it was like it was 20 minutes oh my god the movie's over uh, it's just that enthralling and i think it's a real credit to 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 make a movie so cinematic using like you know 50 square feet of like set for most of the movie it's just like seven eight actors like going at it like at the top of their game in a, in a really interesting way and it'd be easy to think of like a single setting movie being like derivative of the stage and more like a play than a movie but like you said this is extremely cinematic and um sarah Polly has not directed many movies right it's like less than five yeah, it's, um, her, it's, it's her third narrative film or fourth yeah uh, film uh, i could see her being a really really strong voice if she if she keeps directing movies into the future um, yeah she's been doing it she's you know was started as a child actress and uh you know has been in uh, a number of films as an actress but she's been directing for quite a while it's just that she had this big gap between her third and fourth film stories we tell in this but yeah i hope that she continues to make movies and it's uh they're you know, very different movies, but they all have kind of similar themes um, in a way. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, it was nominated for Best Picture. She got nominated uh, for Best Screenplay. Um, are those the only two that got nominated? Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy that this didn't get an acting nomination. I think it's, I, I think it's kind of a joke. Um, but I, we I, can. <laughs> I, I, the two women got nominated for everything everywhere and so it kind of knocks off this argument but it's i wonder if like there were just so many strong female performances that they like canceled each other out and like no one got yeah, nominated. i could see that i claire mean foy. for me the the standouts were jesse buckley and claire foy um just amazing yeah um, but also rooney mara um what's the name of the older act judith some judith ivy i think um and ben so, in it too the one Basically. That's true. Uh, so we can move on to your number one, which was one of my honorable mentions, but because I knew it was your number one, I withheld from speaking about it. So you can go ahead and reveal Jonathan Winchell's number one movie of 2022. Yeah, it's The Banshees of Inisherin, 
I've been a fan of Martin McDonough's. I've seen all four of his feature films in a theater in the original release. Um, I was a really big fan for years of In Bruges, which stars the same two leads as Banshees, Colin Brennan Farrell. Gleason and Colin Farrell. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that they give in this new film uh, two of their best performances ever, if not career best performances. I mean, I, I would put down that it's Colin Farrell's best work ever. And he's had quite a year in 2022 with the Batman and after Yang uh, among other work. And I just think that it's, it's an odd combination because it's a very funny movie, but it's also very sad and melancholy. And ultimately towards the end, I think kind of tragic. Yeah. Um, And it's just, it got four acting nominations and I think all of them are absolutely deserved. I mean, I honestly think that I might have it win uh, three. I would, vote for Colin Farrell, uh, Brendan Gleeson, and Carrie Condon, if I were picking uh, from the Oscars. And even just from what I would pick, even regardless of what actually got nominated, I think I would pick all those. I would argue that Brendan Gleeson should be in the lead category too. I mean, like, I don't understand why one is lead and one is supporting. Um, so I would nominate them both, but I'm happy that Brendan got nominated. Uh, but and Barry Keoghan is wonderful in the scenes he's in. There's one where he's talking with Carrie Condon's character, and it's just so heartbreaking. And it's such a wonderful scene. And I was so happy that he got nominated. Um, I saw, I didn't know this, that he like went around to as a youth in like multiple foster homes. And now he's an Academy Award nominee. And he's like, you know, right around our age. But yeah, I just think that it's brilliantly written. It's just, it's like, I, I really hope it wins best original screenplay because like to me, there's no competition for, you know, a better written film and uh, it's nominated for best picture, best director. Uh, Martin McDonough uh, was nominated for best screenplay uh, for three of his four movies so far. And um, I I like to specify that I saw his first, his four feature films because he actually has already won an Oscar because his short film six shooter which stars Brendan Gleeson, won the Oscar for Best Live Action Short almost 20 years ago. Um, and I've seen that, and it's wonderful. But yeah, Banshees of Inisherin. And it's also, it's beautifully shot, you know, set 100 years ago in Ireland. Um, just There's nothing I didn't like about this movie. It's, it's really funny, but it's dark, and it's quirky, and it takes some strange turns. But I completely bought into, you know, kind of the it's weird to say the conceit of the film, but it, it takes some dark, weird turns. And I just found it a really thought provoking and emotionally rich and beautifully acted, beautifully written. Yeah. I I'm just heaping praise on it, but yeah, it's my favorite film of the year. I wouldn't say necessarily it's like, Oh, like there's this huge gap at, you know, between my one and two, it's like, uh, but it's it is my number one. It's the best film for me of the ninety plus movies I saw from last year. It's one of those ones that um, is so specific that it becomes like universal in its subject matter. It does such a good job of nailing this provincial, uh, you know, very rural Ireland island off the coast of Ireland in nineteen twenty, which seems like it's about something very specific. But because it's it nails the details so well, it becomes something about so much more than than its setting and, and, and its plot um i thought it was just outstanding the way it like sort of reveals itself as the movie goes on and becomes something like different it takes on these different 
tones and uh, just becomes like weightier and weightier as you're watching it and uh, just the buildup of tension and everything. It's a pretty masterful kind of movie. I think um, maybe some people might be misdirected by uh, it being like nominated for best comedy at the Golden Globes. It isn't like a comedy. It's not. It's well, funny, but it's not like, you know, the traditional way we think of a comedy where like at the end, everything's great. And <laughs> it's yeah. not that. Yeah. I mean, I would certainly say it is a comedy drama, but it's um, a heavy film and it's a sad, melancholy film. And that it's like I legitimately laughed a lot of the times and it's like consistently funny and witty, but it's not like the hangover. <laughs> you know? No, <laughs> uh, even though they're both about friendship. It's I true. Guess. But uh, yeah, I know it's kind of an odd title uh, like when I'm recommending it to people. It's like I almost pull it up on my phone most of the time. Like this is the title written down. Yeah, the Banshees, the Banshees of what? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the what of what? Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. It's like the 30 Rock joke where they have the film that. The Roger. Yeah, it's like no one can figure out what it's saying. But yeah, it's on HBO Max as well as being able to rent on various streaming services. Um, also one of the shorter best picture nominees in the last five years. Like I'm a nerd about this, but like, I think there's only been about 10, uh, 10 or a dozen uh, best picture nominees out of the 45 in the last five years that are under two hours. And this one's like an hour and 51 minutes. Yeah, it's crazy. Now, like every Marvel movie is two hours and 50 minutes and every best picture nominee is under two hours. It's like, what's happening? Well, no, 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 no. Almost all the best picture nominees are over two hours. No, I know, but we're getting like, you know, women talking. It's like an hour and 40 minutes. These are outliers. Like These are outliers. Oh, yeah. I know, but it's becoming very normal for, for Marvel movies to be three hours long, which I think is, I don't know when that happened. Um, yeah. But we can we can review our I have five with some honorable mentions. So I'll, I'll go ahead and do my five and then you can give us your ten. Um, it's After Sun, directed by Charlotte Wells, is my fifth best. Uh, Women Talking, directed by Sarah Polly at number four. Decision to Leave, uh, directed by Park Chan-wook at three. The Fablemans, directed by Steven Spielberg at two. And Tar, directed by Todd Field, is my movie of 2022. Okay, my number 10 is Broker, 9, Decision to Leave, 8, The Fablemans, 7, RRR, 6, The Sadness, 5, Blonde, 4, Tar, 3, The Novelist's Film, 2, Benediction, and 1, The Banshees of Sharon. So any, there we go. <laughs> any last minute, just want to throw out one or two, like don't review them in long detail, but just like, also, this was right on the cusp. Few so other- I wouldn't say... It's not. I had a top five because I think, although stuff like Banshees of Inisherin and Benediction were pretty borderline, I think that those were my five favorites. And these I wouldn't say are necessarily like the best movies of 2020, 2022, but it's two that I liked very much: uh, Top Gun Maverick and See How They Run. Um, See How They Run was just a great movie for fans of Agatha Christie, which I know. I probably seem like I'm a hundred years old to say I'm an Agatha Christie fan and really appreciated there being a movie uh, where Agatha Christie is part of it. But for me, that just was perfect. Um, and then Top Gun Maverick, I think is just one of the more uh, really well-made and really, really fun Hollywood blockbusters that we've gotten over the last few years. I think it's, um, I, I, I keep bringing up Marvel movies, but it just seems like every blockbuster now is a Marvel movie to just, so to just see something like Top Gun Maverick was a real tonic to, um, you know, something like Dr. Strange three or 
Black Thor Panther Revenant 2 or whatever. <laughs> yeah, Thor 5. I have three honorable mentions real quick. Um, Pearl, my second favorite horror film of last year. I know you weren't as big a fan of it as I was. I really liked it. I would have nominated Mia Goth for Best Actress. I mean, she um, was incredible in that movie. Yeah. Um, Emily the Criminal which starred Aubrey Plaza. Like there were like seven, eight nominees. I wish I could have for best actress. I think Aubrey Plaza is really good. This uh, drama, this crime thriller, really strong film. And then a film that I think is very important for people to see, but it's also just a really great work of uh, film is happening. It's a French film about a woman trying to get an illegal abortion in the 1960s in France. Oh, shit. Uh, really, powerful upsetting hard to watch film uh but uh extremely well made uh uh i i wish it had gotten uh more awards of recognition i mean it got a number of like international awards and like kind of more independent nominations uh but uh, no oscar nominations but happening really really strong film so pearl emily the criminal happening three that are right on the cusp for me so now we are wipe washing our hands clean of 2022. We have we have wrapped up our best movies of 2022. Um, now it's the time to look forward. On our next episode, we will be counting down our most anticipated movies of 2023. Um, so we're going to move boldly into the future from now on in what hopefully is a great year of cinema in 2023. Uh, thank you for listening, and we will be back with you next time.